First John chapter 5 is going to be our text for this morning. Uh, on Sunday mornings, we've been making our way through uh, this letter of First John, and uh, I have to say I'm, I'm a little bummed out this morning because this will be our last morning in First John. Uh, it's been a great book, and uh, we spent many weeks just going through it piece by piece and seeing how powerfully it speaks to uh, our having and cultivating a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And in this last section that we're going to consider this morning, you'll see just how relevant uh, John makes it to us. Let's begin here at verse 14 of 1 John chapter 5. John writes and he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, throughout this book, and in the most recent section that we considered last week, John's been developing this theme of us having a real confidence in our relationship with Jesus Christ, having an assurance, having a knowledge of who we are in Jesus, and that we really do have eternal life. And now, coming up on verse 14, he's turning this idea of confidence into having real confidence in prayer. You know, a lot of people don't have much confidence in prayer, even though they pray, I mean, they pray, but they pray in the sense of almost casting up wishes up to heaven rather than really praying in a confident anticipation that there's a God in heaven who hears them and wants to answer those prayers. For a lot of us, prayer is just like uh, uh, taking some coins and throwing them into a wishing well or a fountain or uh, making a wish and blowing out the candles on the birthday cake. I mean, we want it and there's a desire for it there. But there's really not a confident anticipation that, yes, God in heaven hears me and he wants to answer this prayer. Well, in verses 14 and 15, John's going to really deal with this idea of how we can have this confidence in him regarding prayer. And the principle he lays out is very clear. You see that in verse 14? He says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There's so many little points we could make just from that simple statement. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. First of all, I want you to notice that John makes it very plain that he would just have us ask in prayer. He says, if we ask anything in his will, he hears us. You know, I think that first word ask right there is a place where a lot of people fall down in the effectiveness of the prayer. They don't ask God for anything. Now, I don't mean to imply for a moment that our time of prayer before God should only be asking. We want to worship God in our time of prayer. We want to give Him thanks. We want to praise Him. We just want to spend time listening to the Lord in our time of prayer. But friends, if there's something on your heart that you want before God or or that you long for Him to move or to do in your life or to work in the lives of others, can I just say, ask? Many times we don't ask in prayer. James said in his letter... You have not because you ask not. And many times we don't ask. We do everything but ask. You know, I, you get together with other people in prayer, and sometimes you notice this even more strongly. You know, there's the thing in prayer, especially in a prayer meeting, where there's not so much asking as it is the informational prayer. You know what I mean by that, don't you? I mean, you start telling God all about the request and all about the circumstance that needs prayer. And you go on and on. And obviously, you're not talking to God. He knows everything. You're telling everybody else the situation. Can I just say it would be better if you just stopped and told everybody else and then went on to pray and ask God to do what you want him to do? 
Many times when we're praying, if somebody were to say, how would God answer this prayer? You'd scratch your say, I don't know how he would answer because they never really asked for anything. Other times in prayer, and I'm sure you've said this or, or seen it in a prayer meeting as such, you're not so much asking for anything or giving God information. What you're doing is you're preaching a sermon to God. You're giving him a Bible study. You're sort of guiding him verse by verse through some passage. God doesn't need doctrine explained to him. He knows it very well. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't fill our prayers with, with the word of God and with the Bible. Of course we should. But again, in the idea of simply asking a loving God the things that are on our hearts. Now notice second here, he says here in verse 14, that if we ask, and I love this next word, anything. Do you realize that that's what we can pray about before the Lord? We can pray about what? Well, about anything. You know, some of us just don't pray for the things we should pray for. We think that some things are sort of off limits in our prayer life. God wants us to pray about everything. Just like Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication make your requests known to God. Friends, God cares about your whole life, and there's nothing too big. There's nothing too small for you to bring before God's throne in prayer. He says that if we ask anything, there in verse 14, but then next, you see the critical words there, and that's, that's a place where a lot of times our prayers have trouble. He says, verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, isn't this the real secret in prayer? The real secret in prayer, and this is going to come as a real revelation to some people here. The real secret in prayer is to approach prayer not as a means to get what I want done. But prayer is a means by which we can accomplish God's will in our lives and in circumstances surrounding us. Do you see the difference? It's not as if when I pray, I'm there with my own agenda and I'm trying to persuade God to approve of my agenda. You know, we all know what that's like. We were all teenagers, or most of us were, and some of us are getting towards that point. You understand what that's all about, don't you? You know, just like you're trying to persuade mom and dad. You want them to do something. You know, you have it all planned out, and your whole strategy is to get them to agree with what you want to do. Well, many people approach God in that same way. The idea is that we have to persuade a reluctant God to, to want to do what we want to do, but that's not the idea of prayer. The idea of prayer is not to get my will accomplished. It's to bring into accomplishment God's will. Now, if we can pray according to the will of God, we'll see amazing power in prayer. Now, I think this all sort of tumbles forth from so many uh, other things that we see in the uh, letter of 1 John, from things connected with things that Jesus said in the Gospel of John. You know, the same person wrote this letter of 1 John who wrote the Gospel of John. And there's so many things that Jesus said in the Gospel of John that relate to things in this letter of 1 John. Let me show you one of these things right now. Keep your finger here in 1 John chapter 5, but turn to John chapter 15, verse 7. Uh, you're going to turn left in your Bible, back to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And in John 15, 7, Jesus said this, and this it's an exciting promise in prayer. He said, if you abide in me, again, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask for what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now think about that for a moment. That's a pretty amazing promise, isn't it? Anything you desire, God will give it to you. 
ask whatever you desire and God will give it to you. That's an amazing promise. I mean, that's better than, uh, than uh, the genie in the bottle. The genie in the bottle only gives you three wishes. God says, whatever you desire, I'll give it to you. But there's a condition to that promise, isn't there? Look at the first part of the verse. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, you know what the word abide means, don't you? It means to live in. If we live in Jesus Christ, and if his words live in us, something's going on in our lives, isn't it? There's a transformation going on. Our hearts, our will, our desires are becoming aligned with his heart, his will, and his desires. And then when we ask for what we desire, what we desire is what God desires. Not because his will and desire has become the same as mine, but because mine has become the same as his. And then we're fulfilling this verse that John writes about in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, where again he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Friends, that is the great secret of answered prayer discerning what the will of God is and praying for it to come to pass in any situation. Now, friends, I know there might be some of you thinking this exact question, right? Because it's a good question. You say, no, wait a minute, David. I don't get this. If it's God's will, why doesn't he just do it? Why does he wait around for us to ask him to do it? Isn't that a good question? I mean, if he wants to do it, God, it's not like your arm's broken or something in heaven. Just do it. Just just perform what you want to do. It seems kind of silly for God to say, I want to do something, but I'm going to wait around until somebody asks me to do it. Well, it might seem silly to us, but it's not silly to God at all. Because in so many circumstances, what's more important to God than actually getting something done is his work in us as he does it. And do you know what God's looking for as he looks out upon his people? He's looking for partners. He's looking for co-workers. He's looking for people who will have his heart and want to do his will and see his will come to pass. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 says that we are workers together with him. Friends, that's mind-blowing. That God wants us to work together with him. I don't really get why, I mean, it doesn't really make all that much sense to me why God would want me to work with him, but he does. And that means if we're going to work together, if God and I are going to work together, we've got to have the same goal. We've got to have the same agenda, the same will. And I shouldn't expect him to conform to my will. I need to conform to his. See, that's why God leaves many things undone until his people ask for it in prayer. Because he wants you and I to share his heart to share his desires, to share his will. Honestly, that's not always how we pray, is it? I'll just confess before you that sometimes when I pray, I pray kind of like with this attitude. I know none of you would ever do this, but sometimes I do. I pray with this attitude sometimes. God, I really don't care about this too much, so you care about it for me. And I just sort of cast up a wish towards heaven. But what God wants me to do is to have the kind of heart that cares passionately about seeing his will done. Now again, 
For most people, prayer is not like that. It's, it's a matter of persuading God to our point of view. But friends, that's not what petition or asking in prayer is all about. It's understanding what God's will is and then asking him to perform it. So many of the powerful prayers we see revealed in the Bible. I think of Moses' prayers during the Exodus. I think of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. I think of Daniel's great prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Over and over again, the pattern we have for powerful prayer in the Bible is where God's people take his promises before him and they say, Lord, you promised to do this, now do this. I have to say that as a parent, when my children come to me and say, Dad, you promised... It often annoys me, makes me feel guilty because I did promise I'm not performing and that's why, well, that's why it annoys me because I feel guilty. And you know, it never annoys God. God's delighted. God loves it when his children come to him and they say, Lord, you promised to do this and so now I ask you to fulfill your promise. Friends, every time that we pray, we should be thinking in our own hearts a very simple thought. We should say, What possible reason do I have to believe that this is the will of God? Now, if you don't have any evidence from his word to know that this is the will of God, then you don't have much confidence in prayer. But look at it in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. When we're asking according to God's will, when we're praying the promises of God, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. We know it with a real and definite faith. So friends, when you're praying on your own, when you're praying in a group, ask either mentally or vocally, what possible reason do I have to believe that what I'm asking for is God's will? Let me give you an example. Let's say you're praying for the salvation of somebody that you know very very dearly. You love them, you care for them, and and you want them to come to a real knowledge of Jesus Christ and a real relationship with him. And so you're praying for them. Well, ask yourself that question. What possible reason do I have to believe that God would answer this prayer? And then you want to be able to answer that question from his word. Say, well, Lord, I know you say in your word that you desire that none would perish, but all would come to repentance in Jesus Christ. That's what you said in your word, Lord. So, Father, because you've said that you desire that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance in Jesus Christ, that's why I come and pray for so-and-so, and and I ask that you would lead them to salvation. Do you see the power in that prayer? You're saying, God, I'm just bringing your own desire back to you. Now, is it wrong to pray for something that isn't necessarily given to us as a promise in the Bible? Well, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to pray for that. But friends, you just shouldn't have that same confident expectation. But when you come to God and pray according to what he's told us, is his will and his word, what confidence you can have because you are carrying out God's desire and being a partner with him in getting his will done. Well, are there some things we shouldn't pray about? Or are there some specific places we should focus prayer? John's going to talk to us about that in verses 16 and 17. Look at it with me here. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. 
Friends, when we see a brother in sin, John tells us that the first thing we should do is to pray for that person. You saw the words there in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, and then he goes on to say, he will ask. Go and ask God. Talk to God about it when you see a brother or sister who's in sin. It's really the first thing we should do, isn't it? But so often it's the last thing we do. John doesn't say that when you see a brother or sister in sin, go up and get in their face and tell them what a sinner they are. Uh, that's not the first thing you should do. I'm not saying it should never be done. Sometimes there's a place for godly admonition and rebuke in the body of Christ, but it's certainly not the first thing you do. You pray for that person first. Or how about this one? You say, well, I'll pray for them, but I've got to get a lot of other people to pray for them too. And so you start burning up the phone lines and telling everybody else uh, the sin that this other, and did you hear about? Or did you hear about? Or did you hear about? Well, let's pray for them. Well, I don't see where John says you should have a prayer meeting for that person. He says, you just ask, you just pray. You see the great difference? It's coming and saying, I love you. I'm going to pray for you because you're in sin. Now, why would we need to pray for a brother or sister where they're in sin? Well, If you think about your own lives and when you've kind of been in a place of sin, you know how this works, doesn't it? You see, when a Christian is in sin, they obviously need to confess it. They need to receive cleansing from Jesus and they need to walk in repentance. But when we are in sin, sometimes that's the very last thing we feel like doing, isn't it? Sometimes when we're in a place of sin, we need God to do sort of a unique work in our life so that we can come to that place of confession and repentance. And that's what we pray for. You know, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 that if a man is overtaken and in trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Well, that's the first step in this restoration is to pray for that brother, is to pray for that sister. And God says he'll answer such a prayer. Do you see that in verse 16? He will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin. Isn't that amazing? Now, that's a promise and prayer that you can take to God. You're praying for a brother or sister who's in sin. Say, Lord, you promised that you would give that person life if I would pray for them. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray diligently for them, Lord, that you would grant them life and free them from this sin. You know why I think God grants a special power in prayer when we pray for a sinning brother or sister? It's because we're really demonstrating love towards that person, aren't we? I mean, if you love me, the most precious thing you can do is pray for me. If I love you, the the greatest thing I can do is to pray for you. And all through this letter, John's been telling us, love your brother, love your brother, love one another, love one another. Well, the, the best thing you can do for somebody if you really love them is to pray for them. We're loving each other best when we're praying for each other. Now you notice I sort of skipped over something in verses 16 and 17. Maybe it's the first thing you notice. It's a big question there, isn't it? John brings up this issue of a sin leading to death. And he's saying, wait a minute, you know, it seems to imply that if somebody is sinning this sin leading to death, well, don't pray for them. Of course, I want you to notice, John never says don't pray for them. He just simply commands that you don't have to pray for them. He says you don't have to do it. But then it brings up the whole issue, doesn't it? What is this sin leading to death? What does that mean? Well, you know, as you can imagine, theologians and Bible teachers through the centuries, they sort of had a field day with this. And there's been a substantial portion of of Christians throughout the ages who have said, well, I know what the sin leading to death is, and you don't have to raise your hand, but you might just kind of nod if you know what I'm talking about here. They they say uh, the sin leading to death, well, that's that's a mortal sin. 
You know, there's two different categories of sin. There's mortal sins and there's venial sins. And venial sins, well, those are kind of the gimmies. Those are the mulligans in life. And, you know, God can forgive those. You know, you just, well, you go talk to somebody and confess your sin to somebody. And, well, they'll forgive you the venial sins. But the mortal sins, well, forget it. You sin one of those, and that's a sin leading to death. There's no chance. It just goes straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. There's no hope for you then. And they've even drawn up lists. Well, here's the mortal sins, and here's the venial sins, and, and that's what it is. Friends, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't get that at all. If that's the case, if there's a sin that a person commits, that, that God won't forgive you, even if you're repentant of it, well, then I don't know what that sin could possibly be. I mean, didn't John say in this very same letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, go ahead and turn back and take a look at it. It's just a page two back. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, I just don't see it. I don't see it where he says there, uh, if we confess our venial sins, he's faithful and just to can forgive us uh, our sins except the mortal sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness except mortal sin. I don't see it in there. And there's cleansing available to every repentant heart. So what's John saying when he talks about a sin leading to death? Well, friends, I don't think he's talking about spiritual death here. If he was talking about spiritual death in 1 John chapter 5, then I don't know why he would use the term brother. Did you see that? He says in verse 16, if anyone sees a brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, and the implication is that you could see a brother sinning a sin that does lead to death. I don't think he's talking about spiritual death here. I think, and this may be a difficult concept for us to latch on to this morning, but I think he's talking about physical death. You know, the New Testament tells us that it's possible for a person to uh, commit sin or to live a lifestyle of sin enough where God would just kind of say to that person, listen, you've kind of fulfilled your usefulness on this earth. I'm going to bring you home now. Apparently, it was happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 among some of the Corinthian Christians who were disgracing the Lord at their celebration of the Lord's Supper. We know that it happened in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember that? With a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. There they were pretending to give everything unto the Lord. They were singing, as it were, I surrender all. And they weren't surrendering all at all. And so because of their hypocrisy and their pride and their desire for glory, God just... Well, God just brought him home right away. I think a lot of people are thankful that God's not doing that very often in the church today. Now, I Surrender All would be a very dangerous song to sing in the church then. But friends, Ananias and Sapphira, the, the scriptures don't tell us that they were damned, that their souls were lost, but we do know for certain that God took them home. And so I think that this is what John is speaking about. He's speaking about a Christian who has just outlived their usefulness for some reason or another, and God says, well, now it's time to bring them home. Now, I think there's a few important remarks that need to be said about that. Only God knows when such a person is in a state. I mean, you and I might look at somebody and say, man, their testimony is so ruined, Lord, just take them home. And God doesn't think so. That's up to the Lord, doesn't it, isn't it? And to add on to that, how, how terrible it would be, you know, if some Christian meets an untimely death for people to go around saying, well, I guess they were in sin and the Lord brought them home. No, not at all. Only God knows. 
Let me bring up a more important way that I think this idea, which is a true scriptural idea, can be twisted and used of the devil to deceive people. There have been people, um, guilt-ridden Christians, who have been severely tempted to suicide because they've been convinced, well, I've committed the sin leading to death and God just may as well bring me home. I'll just help him out here and I'll end my life now. Friends, can I just tell you that that's just, that's just from the pit of hell. God has nothing to do with such thoughts. And maybe many of us here have at one time or another, just through discouragement or depression or just the severe stress and strain of trials around us, we've been tempted to suicide and we've thought that, well, maybe the Lord should just bring us home and we'll be free from it all. And Lord, maybe I can just help you out some way. Can I just tell you that that is never, ever God's will for anybody? And whatever darkness, whatever depression, whatever discouragement has come over you like a flood in that moment where Satan is just grinding you and and, and using every tool in his arsenal to try to discourage you and to bring you to that point of desperation, it's Satan speaking that to your heart, not the Lord God. Friends, if God wants to take you or I home, he's fully capable of doing it without any help from us. Every breath that I breathe depends on the goodness of God. If he wanted to take that breath from me in a moment, there's no problem for him. He doesn't need my help to do it. So our lives are in God's hands. They're not in our own. He can take us home anytime he chooses, but we want it to be when he chooses, not when somebody else does. So we don't go around trying to figure out who has sinned unto death and who hasn't. You know, you think of Peter after he denied Jesus three times. You'd almost think, well, that. That ruins him. Why not just let him go home to be with the Lord? But God didn't think so. God had much, much more for Peter to do, and, and, and we know that God can restore people. And so John says, listen, uh, you can pray for the sinning brother, but if a person has sinned this sin, and, and really he leaves it unclear to us how we would know that such a person has, but he commands us, or he does not command us, I should say, to pray for a person in such a situation. Now, finishing up the book here, we come to verse 18, where John says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. You know, in the first several verses that we considered here this morning, John's been talking about our confidence in prayer and who we should pray for and who maybe we don't have to pray for. But now in the closing verses of the book, John wants to bring us back to this idea that he's been painting throughout the whole letter, this idea of a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've ever felt like this at times with your relationship with the Lord, but have you ever felt that your relationship with God has been threatened? That it's been under attack? Maybe you feel like you've been under that pressure or that danger of spiritual warfare and you just wonder, you know, maybe the devil's going to have his way with me. Maybe he might win out in the end and I might be laid by the wayside. And you wonder how it's all going to turn out. In the closing verses of the book, John wants us to know that we have a protection from God. Now, part of the protection is something that he has built into us because we're born again. Did you notice the first few words of verse 18? He says, whoever is born of God does not sin. Anybody want to claim to be born of God here this morning? Well, again, you need to understand what John's saying. And 
And I, I don't mean to sound too technical here this morning, but, you know, in the original language that John wrote, he used a very specific grammatic form and verb tenses and a grammatic construction. And when he uses that, that verb tense does not sin, he uses a very specific tense of the verb, which means to habitually, continually sin, to abide in sin, to continue in it. And he says, if you've been born of God, you're not going to go on sinning as you did before. There's going to be a change in your life. Friends, that's a protection you have, isn't it? Has God done a work like that in your life? Has God worked that kind of change where you have a different attitude towards sin that you had from before? And, And if you're born of God, well, you do. That's a protection that he's given us. But not only that, he also gives us a protection against Satan himself. He protects us against the own inclination we have in our flesh, but then he goes on to say in verse 18, But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Well, if it was difficult to understand this idea who's ever born of God does not sin, you say, okay, well, Pastor David, I understand. He's talking about continually sin, habitually sin. As other people here might be troubled by the idea the wicked one does not touch him. You say, David, I feel Satan touching me all the time. Does that mean I'm not born of him? Well, again, I don't want to get too fancy or go into the original language too much, but the word that John uses there for touch means a lot more than just sort of going like this and a light touch with your finger. The word there for touch means to lay hold of, to grab onto, to, to grab onto and to cling to. Friends, he's not just talking about touching as you might accidentally touch somebody. He's talking about to seize something, to attach one's self And what he simply says, he says, if you're born of God, Satan can't attach himself to you. Oh, he can pester you, he can deceive you, he can tempt you. He can, in that sense, provide a lot of torment in your life, really as much as you'll let him bring. But friends, he cannot attach himself to you because you're born of God. You're a different person. You're born again by the Spirit of God. Because we are born of Him, Satan cannot attach himself to us or cling to us in the sense that he can in the life of someone who is not born of Him. Do you see the protection God gives us because we're born again? We have a change inside, and so we don't have the same inclination to sin that we had before, and we have a protection against Satan. No, I think that's a special word that some of you need to hear this morning because maybe you've come here this morning just sort of bound up with fear and anxiety about what Satan might do to you. Maybe it bothers you when you go to sleep at night. You wonder about what Satan could do to you and how he could ruin your life and what he could do against you. Friends, you see the confidence and the protection that God gives us in his word that as we cling to Jesus, as we're born of him, Satan cannot attach himself to us. Now, again, it doesn't mean that he can't pester us and bother us. But, friends, it's a different thing. He can't attach himself to you. You belong to Jesus Christ. You don't belong to the devil. And so he can only go so far in attacking you. Friends, do you understand what Satan would do to you if he could? Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? We read about it in the Gospel of Luke. He said, Peter... Uh, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That's a scary thing to hear from Jesus. What Satan would like to do to you if he had the opportunity. But you know, God has set bounds as to what Satan can and cannot do in the life of the believer. He said, you can go this far, but no farther. And friends, he won't let him attach himself to you. 
Now, that deals with the flesh. We're born of God. We have a different inclination towards sin. The devil is dealt with, and the fact that he can only do so much against us. Now, in verse 19, he says, We know that we were of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, we have a different master than the world does, don't we? And friends, how often we need to really remember that. We're different because we're changed in our flesh. We're different because we're changed in regard to Satan, and we're different in our relationship to the world. Because, friends, we don't, we don't worship the things of this world anymore. We're going against the flow. You know, a dead fish can float downstream and go with the flow of things. But it takes something that's alive. It takes something that has vitality in it to swim against the stream. And that's what God's called us to do in Jesus Christ, to swim against the stream. To be different than the world. Let's wrap it up with the last two verses here. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, and his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. You know, throughout this book, he's been speaking to us about the importance of a real relationship with God. And we see how he touches on it in regard to prayer and in regard to the protection that we have. And in these last two verses, he talks about uh, the fact that we can know him who is true and be in him who is true, Jesus Christ. And we say, yes, John, we understand you're focusing us back on this idea of knowing Jesus and knowing him by experience. That we can have this understanding, and it's understanding that's given to us by God. You know, you can't figure out God on your own. I don't know, maybe you've got some Mensa members here. You've got IQs that are off the charts here. Boy, you're a very smart person. Well, congratulations on being so smart. You can't figure out God, though. You can't know Him unless He reveals Himself to you. But He's given us an understanding. He's shown us who He is in Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus shows you from beginning to end. We may know him who is true, John says in verse 20, by looking at Jesus. And Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Yes, he's a man, but he's more than a man. He's fully man and fully God. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And he reveals God to us and reveals us to it perfectly. And we're tracking with John in verse 20. Yes, a beautiful conclusion of the letter. Then he throws in verse 21. And I don't know about you, it makes me kind of scratch my head. John, you just seem to end the book so beautifully. What, is this like a P.S. at the end, or what's going on? He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I say, how does this verse apply to me? I don't have the little statue of Buddha at home that I go down and burn incense to, or you know, I have the statue of Mary or St. Jude or Christopher or whatever. I'm not doing all that stuff. What's up with that? I never went to the church where you burn the candles before the statues or anything like that. What's he mean by keep yourself from idols? Well, friends, it may seem like a strange way to end this letter, but... It's actually fitting in with the theme of a real living relationship with God perfectly. You know what the greatest danger is to your own relationship with Jesus Christ? It's idolatry. Again, that might shock you and make you think strange. I I don't worship any little statue. I'm not in all that business. Friends, the the statue doesn't have to exist as as a real, physical, tangible statue. Maybe the false representation that you have of God or of Jesus Christ is just in your head, but it's there nonetheless. Let me ask you a pointed question this morning. The God that you serve, the God that you pray to, the God that you worship together with us here this morning, how do you know that that's the God who's really there? You know it 
by making sure that it's the God who is real according to the Bible. It's very easy for us to fashion our own kind of God. Now, you'd never do it. You'd never go and start carving a little statue and making a piece of wood and painting it and then burning a candle for it and a little altar at your house. You'd never do that. But maybe you're chipping away and carving a little statue in your mind. You say, you know, I want a God who's a little easier on this particular sin. And so chip, 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 carve away and you make a God who's a little easier. And that's it. You know, I, I want a God who hates those kind of people. And so chip, 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 you're making that little statue, that little image of God. And, you know, I want a God who does this and who does that. And do you see where your ideas of God, you're fashioning yourself just as much as somebody might fashion a statue that they would worship. You're fashioning your own God instead of making him making him be the God who's just simply revealed to us from the Bible. Friends, that's idolatry. And idolatry can come to us in a very uh, obvious way. Well, that person worships their car. That person worships their career. That person worships this or that or the other thing. That's idolatry, you say. That's very obvious. Friends, you can commit idolatry just by fashioning this false image of God in your mind. You can only have a real relationship with God if you're worshiping the God who's really there. So no wonder John ends the book with keep yourselves from idols. That's how we protect our relationship with God. I don't think I'm going to find in any of your garages or homes that little statue you've been working on. But God sees your heart and God sees your mind. Maybe you've been fashioning that idolatrous image of God in your own mind. You know, why don't you ask God to search your heart and to try your thoughts and to see if there's any wicked way in you, a way that would fashion a God more suitable to your own liking. And instead of doing that, that you just say, Lord, I, I want to know you as you really are, as you revealed in your word, where I like it and where I don't like it. I want to conform to you. And that sort of brings us back to the idea of conforming ourselves to the will of God, doesn't it? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you desire and I shall do it for you. I think there's a lot of work that God has to do in us to build this real relationship and he'll protect us. He'll protect us against the flesh and the devil and the world. Friends, don't you see, we need to keep ourselves from idols where the subtle are obvious. Let's pray and ask God to do that.